Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 21. This section has to do with the standard of holiness required of the priesthood. The priests are those who have been brought near. Therefore, we're not surprised to see here that the standard for them is a little bit higher than it was for the average Israelite. The more you know of God, the more intimate your experience, the more is expected of you. Jesus said the same thing in Luke 12, 48. He said, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The Apostle James applied this to the Christian ministry. He said, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James 3.1. So this section is teaching a timeless principle, albeit in rudimentary form. The principle is that leaders in the covenant community need to be held accountable to a higher standard of holiness. As we've already talked about when dealing with the sacrifices for sins committed by leaders, the expectation is not that leaders will be sinless. Of course they'll sin. They'll sin because they're sinners. They will sin because they're not Jesus, so they will sin. But that doesn't mean that we lower the bar. Rather, we raise the bar because the leaders stand before God and in some important respects represent God before the people and in the community in general. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, Who is sufficient for these things? 2 Corinthians 2.16 The task is beyond us. But where there are standards, there is grace to help us grow into those standards. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him, because she has had no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband. For the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. This entire section dealing with the holiness requirements for priests is presented over two chapters in six discrete units. You can identify these units very easily because each one of them ends with some version of this phrase that we just read, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. You'll hear that line here in verse 8, then again in verse 15, and verse 23 in chapter 21, and then three more times in chapter 22 in verses 9, 16, and 32. 
The first section then in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 21 has to do with restrictions on mourning and marriage for ordinary priests. Remember that contact with a dead body would render a person unclean. There was a process for dealing with that, but the point is that if a priest should have contact with a dead body, he would be rendered unfit for duty for a period of time. And, and since his primary devotion was to the Lord, the number of times that could happen and the number of people for which that could happen needs to be limited. He could do that for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his young virgin sister. Now, the modern-day reader is sometimes alarmed by verse 4, which is very difficult to translate. The actual Hebrew says, a husband as one among his kin, but we aren't sure what that means. It may mean that he is not to act toward all his kin as he acts towards his nearest kin, for example, towards his wife. However, that translation complexity, combined with the fact that the text does not explicitly mention an exemption for his wife, tends to confuse and agitate the modern reader. But it doesn't really need to. Gordon Wenham explains here, saying, Since she is one flesh with him, the law simply takes it for granted that he would defile himself for her. As a way of shocking his listeners, Ezekiel, a priest, was told not to go into mourning even when his wife died, Ezekiel 24, 15, closed quote. So that's very helpful. We forget that according to Genesis 2, 24, a man and his wife are considered one flesh, one entity in the eyes of God. The wife is the husband's nearest kinsman, so near that she isn't really a kinsman at all. She is just him. We used to understand that. Our parents and grandparents used to make that kind of tacky joke when introducing each other at parties. They'd say, everyone, meet my better half, and we'd all have a good chuckle with grandma and grandpa. Well, there, there's actually a sense in which that goofy joke reflects some pretty solid and biblical theology. And maybe if our generation thought a little bit more about that, then the divorce rate wouldn't be as high among us as it currently is. However, the main point here is that the man, of course, could bury his wife and his closest relatives. But other than that, he was not to involve himself in funerals for distant relatives or non-kinsmen. Which is interesting, because in our minds, involving yourself in funerals fairly widely is one of the main jobs of a pastor. But of course, a pastor is not a priest, and the New Testament ministry differs in many important respects from the Old Testament ministry. In the Old Testament, there was a significant concern for the Israelite priesthood to bear absolutely no resemblance to the pagan priesthood. And so many, if not most, of these regulations are really about making sure that the Israelite priests give standard pagan practices a very wide berth indeed. Pagan priests were heavily involved in funeral rituals, worshiping the dead and trying to communicate with the dead. It was a big part of pagan worship. So it was not something that priests within the covenant community were to be in any way associated with. Likewise, they were not to engage in pagan mourning rites, such as shaving the head or tattooing the body. The body was part of what it meant to be, image and likeness of God, so it was not to be abused or disfigured in any way. The priest was also held to a higher standard with respect to marriage. 
A priest was to marry within his patrilineal tribe, that is to say, from someone in his father's tribe. He was not to marry a prostitute. The issue there would be her former association with pagan worship. A prostitute in that culture would have worked in association with pagan fertility cult centers. An Israelite priest must not be intermarrying with people involved in pagan worship. Nor should he marry a divorced woman. Given that the only acceptable reason for divorce in the Old Testament, according to Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 24, was sexual immorality, which at that time meant that the the woman had committed sexual immorality, obviously she was not a fit or reliable partner for a priest. Now, while we want to remember that these laws, and indeed the entire Jewish priesthood, was a sign and tutelage only, there are nonetheless a variety of principles here that we would be wise to attend to. The basic principle being communicated is that the priest must understand that his primary loyalty and duty is to God, and he should expect that his ministry will, in some ways, disrupt his normal actions and behaviors as a family member. I think a man entering into New Testament pastoral ministry would be wise to reckon with those same realities. And he would be very wise to discuss those realities with his wife before he proposed to her. I vividly recall having perhaps the least romantic pre-engagement conversation in the history of the universe with my beloved wife a few weeks prior to my proposal. I told her that if she consented to marry me, she would be basically binding herself to a dog and a chain. I work for Jesus, I told her. And if he calls me to go somewhere and you're married to me, then he's calling us to go somewhere and we will go. No questions asked. We will figure out the details later. Together, but later. We will do everything we can, of course, to make it a blessing for the children. But we will do it. No matter the cost, no matter the inconvenience. Are you sure you want to be a part of that? Because that will be the deal if you marry me. And she responded by asking some really important, really wise follow-up questions about how exactly we would discern the will of the Lord and how much input she would have in that process. But then she agreed that if the Lord was truly calling on us, and, and, if, and if we together discerned that, then we would surely go wherever the Lord sent us, and we would surely do whatever the Lord commanded us, and we would trust the Lord to provide and to help us do that in the most loving and wise way possible. Every pastor, probably every Christian person, but certainly every pastor, should have some version of that conversation with their loved one before formally engaging to marry. Now, is that super romantic? No, it's probably not super romantic. Is that wise, biblical, and prudent? I think the answer to that would have to be yes. Verse 9. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. 
I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute. These he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Here we see the high standard for children associated with the priest. Another reminder that whether you like it or not, leadership in the covenant community does entail higher demands upon your children. In the New Covenant Church, again, we're not under the Sinai Covenant, but as a condition for the eldership, Paul mentions that children in the home need to give evidence of submission. The family communicates to the congregation and to the community. So perfection is not required. Sin and rebellion do not necessarily disqualify. But the pressure is increased, and the need for there to be appropriate discipline and leadership is certainly heightened. In verse 10, we see that there is an even higher standard for the high priest. He is not allowed to attend even the funeral of his own parents. The idea in verse 12 is not that he lived in the sanctuary, but rather he could not leave aside his duties in the sanctuary so as to attend to a funeral, even for his parents. The marriage restrictions are repeated in verses 13 to 15, but again, the bar is a little higher for the high priest. Like the ordinary priest, he could not marry a prostitute or a divorcee. But here it is added that he can also not marry a widow. He needed to marry a virgin from among his own people, that is, from among the priestly tribe. Andrew Bonner sees here not a principle to be retained or reflected upon by the priesthood of all believers, but rather a prophetic type of Christ. And I think that is legitimate. Principles drawn from the regulations for the priesthood as a whole are likely best applied to believers generally, and in some cases, New Testament ministers particularly. But principles drawn from regulations relating to the high priest are more naturally applied to Christ. So Bonner says here, here is another type of our great high priest. His church is espoused to him as a chaste virgin, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. And he says of her, my undefiled, Song of Solomon 6, 9. And she says of him, my first husband, Hosea 2, 7, close quote. We ought then to see in this a reminder of the perfect holiness and majesty of our great high priest and a reminder that we, his people, are to be pursuing total and complete purity. R.K. Harrison says here, in a corrupt, adulterous generation, holiness and purity of life can be attributed only to the sanctifying work of the Spirit in the believer's life, close quote. That is absolutely true, and therefore we cry out, help Lord Jesus, make what you love. Continue to work on us and in us, changing us by one degree of glory to the next into the same image. Let this be the work of the Spirit in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 16. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, 
or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. The list of blemishes that disqualify a man from serving in the tabernacle parallel those listed that would disqualify animals from being offered on the altar. The basic idea is that the nation must offer to God its very best. They weren't to serve him with animals or men they could not otherwise use. They weren't to give their best and brightest. Now, the principle is buttressed with practicality and kindness. A man with a disqualifying blemish could still receive his portion of food, but he was not admitted to the active duty roster. Again, we are thankful that while the principle remains intact, we are no longer under the letter of the Mosaic law. Matthew Henry says here, Under the gospel, those that labor under any such blemishes as these have reason to thank God that they are not thereby excluded from offering spiritual sacrifices to God, nor, if otherwise qualified for it, from the office of the ministry, closed quote. The principle having been taught through obvious and rudimentary means, the legislation itself is now abrogated, thanks be to God. Now we have the command in spiritual form, as for example in Romans 12 verse 1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Close quote. We are still to serve the Lord with our all and with our best, we are still to give him that which is holy and acceptable as our spiritual act of worship. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.